Now, the first church that we addressed this morning was the church at Ephesus. And in that, we discovered that the Lord desired a church that showed love. Love for Christ. A church in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely that is the very first mark of any true New Testament church. And in the second church addressed in Smyrna, he also uh, speaks well of their behaviour because of their faithfulness. And that's the second thing that the Lord desires in any church. Firstly, love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is called Smyrna. It's 45 miles north of Ephesus. And it's a beautiful city that was very prosperous. Many visitors passed through on a daily basis. It was a port as well as a place of industry. It was a place that was under Roman authority. They allowed various religions to conduct themselves in that place. However, worship of the Roman emperor grew during the first century. And when we come to the end of the first century AD, we find that Caesar worship was compulsory. Once a year, all the citizens of that part of the world had to burn a pinch of incense on an altar that was dedicated to Caesar. A certificate was then issued to those who burnt incense and said, Caesar is Lord. And that was their task and duty done for that year. They could go about their business. They were accepted by society. Now, while other religions were allowed to worship and teach in the city, they had to make this sacrifice to Caesar, and then they were allowed to go on with their own religion. Of course, the Christian church did not want to do this. This was totally going against their worship of the Lord as the one true living God, and therefore they said no. And we're going to come to it in a few moments' time to see how exactly that worked out. It resulted in persecution. It resulted in them being ostracized. It resulted in hardship. And you know, as we think about this, in our day and in our generation, there seems to be a tolerance for every type of religion, no matter what it is, no matter what it teaches, apart from Bible-believing Christianity. It doesn't have the same tolerance toward it. You see, the devil is very subtle and in this multicultural society that's being promoted all the time. We have to accept everything and we have to accept everyone. However, when it comes to Christianity, that doesn't have to be tolerated. That doesn't have to be accepted. And in fact, there are many people who are totally opposed to Christianity, speak against it, and had you spoke against any other religion in the world today, you'd be labelled labeled a bigot, you'd be in charge, or charges of being unfair, uh, being guilty of hate crime, and all of these things are raising up today, but if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter. Why is there such antagonism toward Christianity? Why true Bible-based Christianity that preaches the blood of Christ, exalts the person of Christ, calls people to live holy lives, tells sinners they're going to hell unless they repent. Why is this under such attack today? Why is it not accepted? We can give many arguments for it. But the Holy Spirit really gives it to us in John chapter 3. Men love darkness rather than light. 
because her deeds are evil. And because of that love of darkness, when the light of the gospel shines through, unless they repent and turn from their sin, they are not like makes them feel uncomfortable. And they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that they're not acceptable before God. They don't want to hear that there's a hell for those who are not saved. And men run to the darkness rather than to the light. And whenever we come to this passage, we find that the church in Smyrna continued to shine the light of the gospel. And they continued to be faithful. And the message given to them is from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse number 8. These things said the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. We have two descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ here. First of all, the first and the last. Now, of course, when we take that word first, we know that he is foremost in time, in place, in importance. He is the best, the chiefest, above all, and will be forever. He is preeminent. And whenever we take the word last, we think of the fact that he is forever. He is always there. He always will be. In fact, this is speaking of his eternality. The reality is, not one person can exist outside of his authority. And without him, we are nothing. None can exist outside God. And we think about this truth. Christ is first. The eternal one. We ought to be praying that he's first in his church. He is the one that is given preeminence in his church. That his word will have first place. That his worship will have first place in our lives. You know, we can fall into a, a trap of trying to please worldly people in the church of Jesus Christ. Spending our energy running after people, trying to make people feel happy as if man is the most important in the church. Rather than using our energy to exalt, preach, worship and uplift Christ. That's the first duty of the Christian minister. To exalt Christ. And when this is done, God's people will be blessed and strengthened. When this is done... The unsaved will be brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of the church is a Christward work. It's for Christ. It's unto Christ. And I trust that as individuals and as a church here in Port Hope, we will remember that Christ is first in time, in place, and in importance. We read in Colossians 1.18 that in all things he might have the preeminence. You know what the word preeminence means in the original Greek? It means to be first. That he may be first. And that comes from a word which means to be foremost. And therefore the prayer of the true Christian church is that when people come into the house of God and leave the house of God, they'll not talk about the preacher. They'll not talk about the saint. But they'll talk about Christ because he has been presented. We praise God for preachers. We praise God for hearty, good gospel singing. But above all, we want Christ to be seen. And we want Christ to be honoured in his church. We're also reminded that he is the eternal son of the eternal God. There are many today and they speak of Christ as if his beginning was simply in Bethlehem. Whenever we read scripture, we are told in John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And it tells us that he created all things. Without him, nothing was made. And therefore, we realize that while he was manifest to us in the flesh, in Bethlehem, all those years ago, Christ is the second person of the Trinity. And we rejoice in the fact that he is the first and he is the last. When we think about that statement, Christ is the last. In our discussions and debates in life, and whenever we talk about things to do with the work of God and the word of God, there are people who love to get the last word, the last argument. They're right, no matter should a million people be against them. They're right and you can turn them. But in the work of God, Christ must have the last word. His word must be the foundation upon which we build, the standard by which we live. And not only should he have the last word in our conduct, but he should have the last word in our services. We always should come to Christ, whether it's a worship service, a gospel outreach, a Bible study, a prayer meeting, a committee meeting, or a session meeting. No matter what we are doing in the work of God, it must bring us to Christ. It must conclude with the person and the work of Christ. It ought not to be that we leave a meeting saying, Am I happy or pleased? Did I get my way? Do I think that's right? But rather, is the Lord honoured by what's been done today? And I'll tell you, if the Lord's honoured, we will be blessed and the work will be built up. But not only is he the first and the last, it says he was dead and is alive. And praise God, here we have the wonder of wonders. That God became flesh and died for his people. And as we think of the work of Calvary, we ought not to look upon it as the greatest tragedy, as some people do today. As if this happened to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and was out of his control. He came to die that death. That was the plan before this world was created. It was planned in eternity. It was completed in perfection. It's vicarious in its results. And praise the Lord, it's sufficient for today. What do men and women, boys and girls need today? They need an interest in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, the shedding of his precious blood. And the head of the church, the one who is the utmost authority in this work, is the one who loved us and gave himself for us. The one who purchased the church to be his bride. And whenever we think of that uh, picture that's given in the book of Ephesians, we are reminded that there's a special relationship between Christ and his church. There ought to be. It's pictured as the marriage union. So what's significant about the marriage union? There's a love, the one for the other. And it ought to be that the church loves Christ. That's the emphasis that there was there in Ephesus. But it can never be overemphasized. Oh, love him with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. That's always been the call from heaven. And we can only love him in the way that he is presented in Scripture as the risen Savior. We can only love him truly when we're saved, whenever we have repented from our sin, whenever we've been justified by the bloody shed on the cross of Calvary. His death is the greatest display of love that this world has ever known. Greater love hath no man than this, and a man laid down his life for his friends. And as we think about the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our love will flourish. It will grow. 
But thank the Lord, we don't just stand at a cross. We can take that journey to the tomb. And we can see that that tomb is empty. The cross was not the final work that Christ did or is doing. Praise God, it's a necessary work. Without the cross, there's no salvation. But Christ rose again and continues to work. He lives in the power of an endless life. There is a ministry that Christ conducts today for his people. He lives to pray for us. He has an interest whenever his people meet together. Heaven is an address in this meeting. Oh, hundreds of people may go by this place and wonder what's happening. Heaven's interested and knows exactly what's going on in this meeting. He lives to pray for us. He lives to bestow gifts to us. Those things purchased at Calvary. The joy of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord. And he lives that we might live in victory. Because he lives, he shall live also. Whenever I thought about that passage and how in the church at Smyrna it's emphasized that he was dead and is alive. I'm reminded that in that city there was much idol worship. There were several temples built in the city of Smyrna to various of the Greek gods. There was the worship of the emperor. And the emphasis that's being made here is those whom you worship, if they were alive, will die or they have died. They were simply idols. And whenever you turn with me to Psalm 115, it is emphasized here about the futility of idol worship, of false religion, of placing your life upon something that is not real or something that cannot see it. We read in Psalm 115 verse 4, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. And here we are reminded that in these cities of idol worship and false religion, there is a living Savior that is preached. There is one who walks among his church as we see in Revelation chapter 2. And what does it say in verse number 1 of Psalm 115? Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us, but unto thy name. Give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. We have a living God who is worthy of all the glory. All the glory. I know sometimes in life we like to be praised or recognized for the things that we do. But you see, when it comes to the things of God, not unto us. Not unto us. Should souls be saved, not unto us be the glory. Should a work advance, not unto us be the glory. Should someone be encouraged in the work of God, not unto us be the glory. Never touch the glory. Don't rob God of the glory that he is due. But as we come back to Revelation chapter 2, what a contrast. Once dead, and now alive. Is there any greater contrast in this world? I don't think there's any greater contrast that there could be from death and life. And then you remember that this is exactly the words that are used to describe you, dear Christian. You once were dead in trespasses and sin, and now you're alive in Christ. 
what does that teach us? You can't be the same now that you're saved as you were before you were saved. There's a difference. If we think about the imagery that Jews in Scripture, think of a body lying in the morgue for a few days, death and decay are reigning within that body. If that body started to live after those days of death, there would be amazement. There would be wonder. There would be great interest. Why? Because death reigned and now life is reigning. There had been such a change. That body that was lying there, dead, unable to do anything for itself, was like up and walking about communicating. And that's exactly what happens spiritually. We cannot truly worship Christ in our sin. We cannot serve Him. We cannot be part of the family of God. But praise the Lord whenever we're saved. A new life is put within. We are made alive in Christ Jesus. And there are marks of life. There's growth. There's hunger for the things of God. Thirst for the things of God. There's one who is faithful. And that is the very mark of this church. Faithful to the Lord. And faithful to the work of God here in Smyrna. Are you saved tonight? Are you a Christian? Are you alive in this meeting tonight? Are you dead in your sins? My prayer is that if you do not know Christ as your Savior, that tonight you'll come to the one who's the first and the last. One who died as your substitute and rose again for your justification. And the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can be saved tonight. In verse number 9, we read a little more of this church says, I know thy works. Now, that already was said this morning in the church at Ephesus. Your deeds, your labors, what you're doing, I know. And this is an encouragement for these people because they're faithful. But not only are they working and laboring for the Lord, we read, and tribulation. Now, the word tribulation means pressure. It means a burden or affliction. It also means persecution. It also means trouble. And it's from a word which means to crowd. And you know what it's like whenever there's so many things crowding your life. So many pressures. So many trials. And it just seems to be you can't go any further. And there's pressures at home. And then there's pressures at work. And then there's pressures in your wider family. Maybe with your health and different things. And these pressures are crowding in and weighing you down and maybe you're in this meeting tonight and you feel exactly like that it doesn't seem that you can get over these things there always seems to be some type of trouble or tribulation in your life but what's interesting is the tribulation that this church faced was because of their fear because he said I belong to Christ not only was there work that the Lord saw, not only was there tribulation that the Lord saw, but he saw their poverty. And that something means to be poor. In fact, he, and the Greek scholars tell us that, that word doesn't mean just to be poor, but to be extremely poor. To have hardly anything at all. They suffered for their faith. It may have been as simple as you cannot work here anymore. You're a Christian. Those things are still going on in the world today. There are people who are being persecuted. There are people who are losing their jobs. There are people losing their livelihood. Even their lives for being a Christian. 
And yet, in the midst of it all, they're continuing to go on and to go through with God. Not only is there tribulation and poverty, but there is great opposition. Because it says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now there's opposition to the church here in Smyrna from the Jewish people. Now traditionally the Jews are known as those people who descended from Abraham. Abraham was seen as the father of the Jewish nation. And of course physically that's true. There is a Jewish nation of people who have descended from Abraham. Many people can trace their heritage right back. But in the word of God, in the book of Galatians, we are told who the true children of Abraham are. And if you turn with me Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 6, you will find that Paul deals with this matter because in the church of Galatia, some of the Jewish people were coming in and saying to the Christians in Galatia, well, that's great that you're saved, but to be fully saved, and to fully know the blessing of God, you need to be circumcised. (laughs) And they're adding to God's requirement for salvation, which is faith and repentance. And whenever we come to Galatians chapter 3, verse number 6, here is what the apostle says, even as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, those who are saved, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. And therefore we can say we are of Abraham's family, not maybe of his line physically, but certainly spiritually. We are in that family line, that heritage, because we're in the family of God. Just as Abraham, he had faith in God, it was counted unto him for righteousness. He believed what God said. And so too for each believer, we are made righteous in Christ and we have the same standing that Abraham had. But what's notable here is that the Jewish people uh, claim to be the people of God. And that's what's really being emphasised. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. They are not truly the people of God because they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. They do not believe he's the Messiah. They were trying to tell people to uh, come away to their religion. Now the Jewish religion we know has many pictures that point to Christ. But the great problem with the Jewish people is that they often do not look to Christ, but they look to the pictures and they depend upon the things that they do and the sacrifices that they make rather than the one of whom the sacrifices speak and the one to whom the pictures point. And we see that in the Lord Jesus' day whenever he stood beside the scribes and the Pharisees. There he was. The one to whom the Old Testament pointed, standing in the flesh before them. They knew the scriptures. They knew what to expect of the Messiah, but they could not see him. They could not see him. They did not have faith in him. And therefore they were claiming to be the true people of God. But here's what the Lord says. They are all the synagogue of Satan. Now that's strong language. What does that mean? Well, it means they are the children of the devil, who, by the way, all sinners are described as. 
children of the devil whose works they do they revile true Christians even go so far as murdering the saints we see that in scripture we look even at the Old Testament record and some of the prophets were murdered because they preached of salvation they preached of obedience to the Lord we people today in this land and across the world and you know what they say I am a child of God I am a Christian and yet they reject the Lord they reject his gospel they reject his word and his teachings but they claim to be a child of God they claim to be on their way to heaven but they've never repented from their sin they never trusted in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ they're preaching heresy because it's things that are not in scripture in fact things that are contrary to scripture you see what I can take from this verse is it's not enough to say that you're a person of God it's not enough to say you're a child of God it's not enough to say it's okay with your soul it's only true whenever you're saved by the grace of God and washed in the blood of the Lamb don't depend upon profession don't depend upon belonging to a Christian church faithful though it be but your only confidence is this that the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven your sin because you called upon his name you called for cleansing you called for salvation because the reality is there are many people standing in churches tonight and they're teaching but they're doing the work of the devil they're doing the work of the devil old people might like them and people might walk out with a smile on their face saying oh doesn't he look like but they haven't heard the truth that their soul is on their way to a lost eternity they haven't heard the truth that unless they turn from their sin for all eternity they will be in hell under the wrath of God and what a day it will be for such people to stand before a holy God give an account for the people they led to hell no warning no truth like those Old Testament false prophets who said peace peace don't you worry everything's okay when there was no peace at all there is no peace except the Lord for the wicked for the sinner outside of Christ there's not one word in this book that brings any comfort to those who will not turn from their sin and trust in the Saviour but praise the Lord there's wonderful comfort for those who do what can we learn from this church and its circumstances they were working in difficult times some people think that just because you're a Christian everything has to be easy some people think that just because you're a Christian everything will be rosy you'll wake up in the morning you'll feel great you'll bounce out of bed you'll look in the mirror you'll look great and everything that's how some people bring it down so foolish you know the Lord Jesus Christ said in this world you shall have tribulation be of good hope. I hope it comes. And therefore, don't be surprised whenever difficulties come across your path. Don't be surprised whenever life is up a little bit hard. The church of Jesus Christ will face tribulation. Satan will seek to pressurize and hurt the church in various ways. And we see that in this particular instance, 
that the pressure and the tribulation is coming from without the church. It's coming from outside the church. But here's what the Bible says in Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you. And shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now natural reaction to difficulties in life is not to rejoice. It's to say, well that's not fair. Why am I always suffering? Why is it always me? Why do these things happen to me? That's our natural reaction. And here's what the Lord says. You're blessed when these things happen. Rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. You see, the church of Jesus Christ has never promised an easy road. It's never promised uh, great ease or great wealth or any of those things. But I wonder, did you notice the little statement in brackets in verse number 9? It says, but thou art rich. Now we've just been told these people were in poverty. And humanly speaking, the majority of people in the city of Smyrna looking at them would have said, look at those poor people. Look at those people wasting their lives and wasting their time. Friend, it doesn't matter what others think of us or what even we think of ourselves is what God thinks of ours. And he declares, this is a people that are rich. Now the word rich means to be wealthy. To be abounding with something. Now there are many people today. And they preach a prosperity gospel. They say if you love the Lord. You'll have plenty of money in your bank account. The best car in the drive. The biggest house in the area. Your health will be perfect. All of these things. And if you just have enough faith. You'll never have any troubles or problems in your life. That is another gospel from hell because it's not from the Bible now I do believe in a prosperity gospel but it's a spiritual prosperity that's the prosperity that Christ preaches it's a prosperity of peace with God pardon from sin justification the Holy Spirit dwelling within the word of God in our hands through which God speaks Fellowship with believers of like precious faith. The assurance of heaven. These are things money cannot buy. If you want to know if you're rich tonight, don't go to your bank account. View how you stand before Christ. And I'll tell you, if you're saved tonight, you're rich. If you put your head in the pillow tonight and say, it's well with my soul, should the Lord not wake me up in the morning, but take me from this scene of time tonight in my sleep, it will be better for me. It will be absent from the body present with the Lord. Friend, that's true prosperity money can't buy those things for people tonight and they're worth billions and billions and billions of dollars and they can't get a night rest they can't get a night sleep they can't get a day without fear and without terror uh, but there are many and they don't have much of this world's good but they have much of heaven's blessing and that's what we need in our lives and praise God that's what God gives by his grace and sad to say how often people reach for material riches at the expense of spiritual I know people and have seen people 
and they're so busy reaching for the things of this world, the money that this world can give. They'll give their life, they'll give their energy, they'll give everything they have to work, 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 work. That's the prayer meeting. That's fellowship with God's people. That's raising their family. All of those things that can be a great blessing in their lives, but they want more of what this world has to offer. Better to have little with Christ and to have lots and be away from them. The old Bible commentator Gill said these words, They were rich in faith and heirs of a kingdom, though poor in this world. They were rich with the riches of Christ, with the blessings of the covenant, with graces of the Spirit, and in good works. They were kings and priests unto God. They had a kingdom of grace here and a right to the kingdom of glory hereafter. They were heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I'm glad tonight that my wealth is not found by the country. It is found in Christ. Verse number 10, the Lord says to such people, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. The word fear means to be alarmed or terrorized. And we are not to be afraid. Now we have to learn this again and again. The Holy Spirit gives it to us in Scripture again and again. Why? Because naturally when things go out of our control, naturally when things go in a way we don't think we should, we are afraid. The first mention of peace in Scripture is Genesis 15, 15. And it said to Abraham, Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. And the first mention of peace in the Scripture is connected with death having peace in the valley of the shadow of death. To die in peace is to die in Christ. We know that Abraham's faith was in the Saviour promised of God. And therefore to have peace in this life in all circumstances is to be trusting and resting in Christ. Peace is not the absence of problems. Peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is not the absence of strife. But peace is a correct perspective in the midst of these things. Peace is having your eyes on the throne of God. Knowing it's occupied by your Savior. Peace is looking to Christ to bring you through whatever is before you. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 26. You see, whenever troubles come, sometimes... We are so busy looking at the problem and it becomes so big, it seems insurmountable, that we forget about God who's bigger than all our problems and bigger than all of our fears. And here is one of my favourite verses in Scripture, Isaiah 26, verse 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on me. Because he trusteth in me. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting <coughs> now you see those words there verse number 3 thou will keep him in perfect peace if I was to read those words to you in Hebrew which I couldn't but if I was to read them the words would say thou will keep him in peace peace it's the same word repeated twice and in the Hebrew whenever the word is repeated twice it's the equivalent of us typing it on a computer and putting it in bold writing 
So it stands out on the page. In other words, it's to emphasize the truth of the word. And the Bible translators have translated in this way, perfect peace. Perfect peace. And the word peace, which is used twice here, means to be safe, to be well, to have prosperity. And once again, we come to this truth. God's people are a prosperous people. Because there are spiritual blessings for us. And one of the greatest of the spiritual blessings is peace in the midst of the storm. Whenever you can't get over those problems. Whenever you don't have the answers that you rest in Christ. Your mind is stayed upon him. You're trusting in him. Even though the harvest should fail. Even though life doesn't go how I want it I will trust in him and what we find here in scripture in Revelation chapter 2 we read that not only are you to have no fear a fear not of the things which I shall suffer we read a little bit more behold the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried and the devil will come the false accuser, the slanderer and he will come and there are many things that the devil will seek to do to us but here I believe what the devil will do for the, toward the church of Jesus Christ is one of three things he will seek to discourage the church he will seek to divide the church and he'll seek to destroy the church and he's up and about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour I pray when we're discouraged there's an absence of peace and when we're divided between one another, there's an absence of peace. And when it seems we're going to be destroyed and things are failing around us, there's an absence of peace. And the devil will come and he will seek to take away your peace. And it says here that some of you will be put into prison. Now, of course, that could happen physically, and there are times that has happened physically. And some of these people in the church of Smyrna possibly did go into the present house. But the reality is we can be in a present house experience without being in a jail. An experience that we have no control over. An experience that we can't just take a key and unlock the door and walk out of. A trial you have to go through. An experience that humanly speaking you wouldn't choose. The present house experience is a thought of isolation. But while we can be isolated and feel isolated from one another in our circumstances, you can never be isolated from the Lord. Remember what Paul wrote to the Philippians in the prison cell. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Do you realize as he wrote that, the very chains were jangling on his wrists? And yet he had the Lord there. That made the difference. See friend, some of the prisons that we can experience in life can be illness. And maybe an illness has come into your life or will come into your life. It will limit your ability. Maybe even to be out and about in the work of God. You haven't chosen it. You haven't done anything that seems to have resulted in it, but God has permitted you to go through this experience. For some, it may be past failures, and that seems to be a present house people can't get out of. And they just can't seem to get past their failure, past their sinfulness even as a child of God. Maybe you're in a present house tonight 
because of circumstances, your own actions. You once enjoyed the fellowship of the people of God. But because of your sin, there's bars of bitterness and apathy around you. And you can't seem to shake up whatever you do. And you seem to be angry at the church and there's people rejoicing around you in the Lord and it's sore in your heart because you once were that person. You once were the praising person. You once were the bright shining testimony. But now you're in a prison of bitterness and apathy. Well I want you to be encouraged because it says ye shall have tribulation ten days. Days. You see, the experience that this church we're going to go through was going to be a limited experience. Now, what exactly those 10 days mean, there's great division among the commentators. Some believe that it means literally 10 days. From the reading of this letter, there's going to be 10 days of intense persecution. Some are going to be put in prison. Some believe it means 10 years. Some believe it meant 10 Roman emperors. In a line, we're going to be persecutors, and that certainly did happen uh, from Nero to Diocletian. It lasted over 200 years. However, some believe it's an expression of speech used in the Greek, which simply means a short period of time. It wasn't to be taken literally, it's 10 literal days, but it simply was an example of an expression which simply means for a short period of time. This shall be for a short period of time. Now I can't stand here tonight and tell you whether it's days, weeks, years, or Roman emperors. I do not know. But what I do know this is that the tribulation or the affliction or the pressure was for a limited time. The trial was soon going to be over. You see, it's known by the Lord how much we can bear. He will not allow us any more that we can sustain or bear through his grace. He allows us to suffer. Do you ever think about that? God permits suffering in our lives. To mold us and make us more like his son. To knock off those rough edges. To humble us. To make us usable in his service. And the Lord permits times that we go through the trial. Not to hurt us. Not to cause us to run away but to draw closer to him yeah. and I don't know about you but in my life the times I have often been closest to the Lord or felt the nearness of the Lord in a very very special way have often been times of great trial suffering remember for the Bible college going to an operation to surgery and I do not like hospitals I do not like needles or any of those things I remember Praying, Lord, get me help as I go and uh, get the surgery. Get me help, Lord, help me not to worry about it. I prayed it, I threw it onto the Lord, and then took it right back again <laughs> and worried again. Yeah. Remember getting down to the hospital, I had to get a line into my arm. I'm ashamed to say it took several nurses to sit there along <laughs> with me and get that in. I remember going down the corridor, being waited in the trolley, and like, Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this. I was that close to saying, I don't want it. And then, as I was moved on to operating theatre, all I can describe is the peace of God. 
That's all I can describe it as. I had no fear. In fact, I felt so calm, I asked him, have you given me something? <laughs> <laughs> no. And I have, could honestly say that's one of the times in my life I felt the nearness of the Lord most close. I could read that as if I could reach out and touch him. So you might say, what is wrong with you? That's not when you'd be worried about or uh, anxious about. That's not a big deal. Maybe not for you, but for me it is. What your tribul- tribulations, what your trials, what your fears are, are going to be different from mine. But I do know this, God is faithful. And he's able to bring us through. And he's able to give us peace in the midst of the storm. And how wonderful to know that in every circumstance of life, you know what the Lord's saying to us? Trust me. Trust me. And that's what it says. Be thou faithful unto death. Be thou faithful unto death. He's calling you to be faithful. Just trust him. You don't have to understand what's going on. The sacred things belong to the Lord. We don't always have the answers, but we can always trust Him. We can always seek to be faithful. The fact that the Lord commands faithfulness in His people reminds us that it's possible to have a lack of trust, to be fearful and to let fear rule our lives. What is faithfulness? Well, I believe we're to be faithful to God, and that's humility. We're to be faithful for God, and that's sincerity. And we're to be faithful like the Lord, and that's Christ-likeness. Faithful is He. And our desire is that we would be like Him. Because if we do not trust in Him, fear will rule. Panic will come in. Hopelessness will flood our hearts. Doubt will nibble at us. And that's why we must put our trust and our confidence in the Lord. That's what faithfulness is. Trusting Him. Taking him at his word. God has said it. I believe it. And resting upon that. We're to be faithful in our walk before the Lord. And if we're faithful in our walk before the Lord, we'll be faithful in our walk before men. We're to be faithful in our homes, as parents, as husbands, wives, as children. In our witness, we think of uh, the lepers there in Second Kings 7, 9. They said one to another that we do not well. This is the day of good tidings. And we hold our peace dear believer are you faithful to the Lord in telling others that there's a saviour who truly saves and truly satisfies do you invite them to the house of God do you pray for them we're to be faithful in our church in our attendance in our membership our obedience and our encouragement and if we're faithful victory is promised victory is promised it says there I will give thee a crown of life. You know what I love about this? He says, I forgive thee. It won't just be given by anyone, but Christ himself will give you this reward. You see, in scripture, there are two different words that are used for a crown. The first type speaks about the kind of a crown a king would wear. The second type of crown is the one that's used here and mentioned here. And it was a trophy that was given to a winning athlete. And it was a, a crown made of laurel leaves. And it was given whenever someone won a race or an event, for example, the Olympics. It was also one that was used at marriages. And the bride and the groom would have received these uh, laurel crowns. 
In celebrations of special occasions, people would wear these laurel crowns. And the crown he's speaking of here is a crown of life. Now we know that if you take laurel leaves and weave them together, they may look beautiful for a few days, but they'll start to decay. And they'll start to fade, and eventually you'll have to throw them out. But not this crown. Because this is a crown of life. It will not fade away. The life that Christ gives is eternal. The life that Christ gives is everlasting. It's a life of abundant joy and peace. And when we go to the end of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21 and 22, we read something of the experience of that life. And there are things that we get in life, and they're great at the start, but then they fade and they decay. But not so the life that Christ gives us. It will never come to an end. We will never grow weary. We will never be disappointed. When we get home and receive that crown of life in heaven, oh, that will be glory. That will be glory for me. And our infinite, or sorry, our finite minds cannot even start to imagine what heaven's going to be. I don't believe we have even scratched the surface on how many messages have been preached on heaven. Praise the Lord one day. It's not by faith we will look to heaven, but we will look by sight. But we'll stand there. And the scripture tells us he, the one who gives the crown of life, he shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. But what causes sorrow and fear and anxiety and hardship down here isn't found in glory. No disappointment. You think of the words of the hymn, there'll be no sorrow there. No more burdens to bear. No more sickness. No more pain. No more parting over there. Forever I will be with the Lord who died for me. What a day. Glorious day that will be. We finish off with the call, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now we only can overcome through Christ. We can only overcome and have victory in through our Saviour. This phrase shall not be hurt of the second death. That is the thought that there is nothing to fear in eternity. Because whenever you die in uh, Christ, you die well. You die well. Christ has already suffered death for you. The sting of death has been removed because Christ suffered and bore the sting of death upon the cross of Calvary. That death for us no longer is something to be dreaded, but rather it is something to be viewed as a stepping stone into our eternal reward. Your death is not the worst day of your life. It's the best day of your life. Your death is not a tragedy. It's a promotion. It's the day when you see your Savior face to face. Death for the believer this transition from time to eternity and we ought not to fear the terrors and the things that the ungodly fear but we ought to look forward to that day I shall see my Lord I remember sitting beside the bedside of a young man and he was dying and I remember going out to see him and he looked me in the eye and he said I'm going home I'm going to see my Savior. How does someone 
on the deathbed able to have such peace because Christ is there mm-hmm. yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for thou art with me I rod on my staff to comfort me Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna approximately a hundred years after this book or this letter was written he was faithful to the Lord and when he was in his latter years in his nineties that man would not offer incense to Caesar on the altar he wouldn't say that Caesar is Lord when they went to arrest him the historians tell us that the soldiers who went to arrest him didn't realise how old and frail he was and they were embarrassed to bring him to the arena they planned a death by lions coming out into the arena to mock him to death for the entertainment of those who looked on but the lions had been put away for the day so somebody decided we're going to build a fire and there seemed to be some sympathy at least among one of the men who were there and he said will you not just say those few words and they will let you go and you can die in peace and he said eighty and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury how then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour and he counted in honour that day to let me burn upon the stake for Christ this church was going through a difficult time but the Lord said fear not I have permitted that you will suffer a little while but remember no matter how long the suffering is short and eternity that you will receive a crown of life I finish with the words of this beautiful hymn Oftentimes, the day seems long our trials hard to bear we're tempted to complain to murmur and despair but Christ will soon appear take us right away all tears forever over in that eternal day at times the sky seems dark there's not a ray of light we're tossed and driven on no human help in sight but there is one in heaven who knows our deepest care let Jesus solve your problems just go to him in prayer. Life's day will soon be o'er. All storms forever past. We've crossed the great divide to glory safe at last. We'll share the joys of heaven. A heart, a home, a crime. The tempter will be banished. And we lay our burdens down. It will be worth it all. When we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face. All sorrow will erase. So greatly run the race to we see Christ. Then he's worth our best. He's worth our faithfulness. He's worth a full surrender. And praise God for that day when we receive the crown of life from the sinners. If you're not ready for that day, I trust you'll come to Christ. You need to be saved.
But if you are seeing today, pray that God will give you faithfulness. Your life will not be ruled by fear and worry over what's going on around you, but with peace because of the one in whom you're trusting. Amen. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.